If you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. BlackBerry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Our next guest is Artie Rivera, Director of Product Design for Mobile Posse. And yeah, we're going to talk about the transformative potential of design systems and how they can help accomplish alignment and integration of, of different silos, which are key ingredients for successful transformation and turnarounds. The other thing Artie's going to talk about is his evolution from designer to design leader to business leader and what he's learned along the way. Let's get into it. Well, let's jump right into our theme. Our theme uh, for this podcast is, is really focusing on transformation, turnaround, pivot, these sort of important uh, um, organizational change moments. So I, I was curious to get your um, uh, an experience that you had that, that centers on transformation or, or turnaround and, and share some of your story. Absolutely. So the most recent one's probably the best one to start with, and that is, uh, so at Mobile Hossi, when they hired me because they had an obvious problem. The obvious problem that everyone saw was, you know, our product looks like it came out of the late 90s and we're having issues both with, you know, getting the, the classic kind of starter superficial level problems. Our customers aren't opting in at the rates that we want them to be opt. It's an opt-in product. You have to actually press something to then start using it. And our sales team is having trouble selling it to some of the higher value targets that we have because they like it on paper. They like the business model that it represents. It's a, it's a ref share type thing. But they, um, when they see it, they're like, oh, you want us to put this on our customers' phones. Well, um, so they had a kind of an issue mm. with that. Um, mm. So that was the obvious superficial problem that I was hired on to solve. As soon as I came on board, one of the things that became pretty obvious was, hey, there are good designs that are in, you know, in, in backlogs, in places. It's not a matter of good design wasn't happening, but there was a lot of connective tissue that was missing. So there was a lot of getting design translated correctly. There was a lot of supporting that translation process and mm. not just throwing something over the wall, classically, mm. of course. Translation um, meaning from, from the UX designers to the, the people implementing the design? Exactly, yep. to, okay. to actual code. So that connective tissue in, in various kind of, in the past, um, I've definitely seen great examples of this concept called a design system. I've gotten mm. to participate in creating them um, and using them and expanding them to help create that connective tissue. Mm. So that was kind of an approach that I used at Mobile Posse. And we're, if not fully implemented on it, because I wouldn't say that we're done at the code level of the designs, with the design system, but we're done with the first full pass of the conceptual level and have a lot more of that connective tissue that I mentioned. Well, before we go deeper on the, I, the the concept of design system is so interesting. For, on behalf of our audience, can you just explain what a design system Absolutely. is? Absolutely. So a lot of people, when they hear design system, they think style guide. Mm -hmm. Style guide, I'll start there because people are some mostly familiar with what a style guide is, what are the colors, what are the fonts, that, you know, the kind of baseline design stuff. Right. Um, so a design system is more of the kind of philosophy and the background, reasoning, the the connect. I'm going to keep on going back to the connective tissue mm. idea. A style guide is a part of a design system, um, but that design system includes lots of rules, not just about 
color and font, but about tone and voice also hmm. can be put into a style guide. But it also includes things like what are the what are the feelings we're trying to evoke in our users? What are the philosophies that um, that our product strives to represent? So it's a lot of the why that connects product and design and QA and engineering and everyone at the company. And it looks different depending on what company that you're at, but it's, it is effectively a set of rules and guidelines just at very different levels in the, in the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it, in the closest nutshell I can do. That's and, and does it extend all the way down to like components in the, in the user's does. experience? Like yes. actual, so code. So, so it's, fully, it's all that philosophy all the way down to code exactly. fully integrated? Yes. So, um, so all the way down uh, a fully realized design system means that the the design the way that the designers work mimics um, the way that a developer works as well so the components mm-hmm. that I'll use the example of how how we work the library components that we use in sketch we happen to use sketch mimic the way that uh, the CMS components work in the CMS part of our product yep. so that when we're building we're building flows or we're building screens we're actually building it in a way that would be similar to it's not 100% there but that would be similar to the way that a developer would think of constructing it what i'd like to push into is how the design system has been a transformative component at Mobile Posse. Can you kind of describe like why has that worked? Why what, what has what has that helped you uh, accomplish? Um, so a big part of why it's worked at the cultural level has been taking design and bringing it out of a black box. There's a there's mm. a classic stereotype of design being in a black box. Nobody really knows what happens. They just kind of see the outputs. A design system, by virtue of its kind of transparency, its documentation, it's trying to use language that the entire business can can get on board with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the underlying philosophy that brings everyone together with a purpose, it makes it a lot more accessible to everyone. So everyone kind of, if I don't expect someone on the sales team to know the nomenclature of our components, that's like not the part of the design system that they necessarily care about. Mm-hmm. But maybe the way we talk about the product and the philosophy behind it can be used by the sales team and by mm-hmm. our marketing team so that we're all kind of in line when we're talking about the product. So right. there's different parts of the system that address different needs that exist in the business. There, there's something really magical in that, in that sort of what you're describing is an, is an integration approach, right? You, we're used to trading off, for example, consistency and speed. And a design system says, no, no, that we, don't, we could actually accelerate and get greater consistency by through a design system, which Absolutely. is a, a top-to-bottom, fully integrated approach that then gives all the different parties. It doesn't let salespeople in on how the sausage gets made, so it still remains a black box, but they get the thing that they care about out of it, and, it, and it takes an integrated approach, um, which which is a, is a theme that we're, we're sort of seeing in some of these stories, is alignment and integration being a key pillar to successful um, pivots. I'll, yes, um, I'll add to that that um, I'm, I'm kind of underselling the engineering component of it, but the engineering component of it is huge. Um, The Mm -hmm. idea that you build it once and you can use that component over and over and over again. So Mm -hmm. for example, a developer can go take a code snippet off the shelf and it works with the rest of the system and it's possible to remix and scale. Honestly, the conversations that you can have with um, engineers and other product people become a lot more 
interesting, frankly. You become a lot more future-facing when you're not constantly saying, oh, hey, so we need to push this box, you know, two pixels to the left, and mm-hmm. this is exactly, the, this is like a 500 font weight, not a the 400. The drop shadow in, in uh, Internet Explorer is not working exactly. right. I've had these conversations, I'm like, ah. <laughs> exactly, and it's the kind of, conver- I mean, they're important conversations, and you totally. never eliminate them completely, but you want to minimize that, that those kind of low-value, if you will, interactions, and maximize the high-value interactions of, what if, hey, I was playing around with this thing, and what if we were to introduce this new interaction mm-hmm. um, to the way that you know our users interact with our with our product, like those kinds of conversations, and be like, hey, yeah, I built it, and I was thinking, you know, what are you thinking about this? Like, how would we test this? Mm-hmm. Those levels of conversations, far more interesting, frankly, just from a personal point of view, mm-hmm. uh, for for everyone involved, and a lot more valuable to the business. Yeah. So you've done design systems at a couple of places. Yes, having a little bit of insight into your background, <laughs> and. Uh, how has how have in design systems there's still a relatively new concept something that's only happened in the last maybe 10 years how has your understanding of design systems and design systems been evolving Sure. So I definitely started out with the what I mentioned before, the kind of style guide view of it's just a big style guide, um, just a very comprehensive one, um, <laughs> and that's where that's where my understanding started for it. Um, I had um, and what would we say? I guess a client in the automotive tech space um, that I was working with uh, at at Three Pillar. Um, so you probably know who I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I was technically I was the, that engagement. I was hired in to take a website and make it responsive. Very mm. classic, straightforward, like, hey, we realize a lot of our users are accessing us on mobile web specifically, even though we have an, an app client, so we need mobile web to work. Currently does not. Can you please help us? Mm. So I came in to do that. The deeper kind of problems that emerged from that engagement are that the way, at the time, the way that that client was working was that every business vertical had a different way of doing product and there were lots of silos there. So it was just kind of a natural problem that I noticed and I started to talk to a few people and realized that, oh hey, there is this, there is, there's this need here. And it's not an unacknowledged need, it's just an unarticulated need mm-hmm. for alignment across the business. So mm-hmm. it really came out as just me talking to a a lot of product stakeholders at the company and showing them the way that the way that my when I say my team I mean myself and a lot of the developers and some of the designers at the company worked and and happened to be outputting things in a in a more modular way in a more mm. strategic way I guess <laughs> gave some presentations on that so I came up with some documentation around that and that was my 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 Early understanding of design systems, my baby understanding of design systems came from that documentation that was output, and it was useful, and people liked it, and that was great. The halfway through that engagement was about a year and a year and change. They hired their very first director of user experience at the company, and I feel like that was definitely a sea change because that director kind of came in. We vibed a lot, and it was really great working with them, and they basically took the components that I had uh, that I had articulated and use that as part of a newer design system that they were that they were trying to get transmitted. The stuff that the way that my understanding changed around design systems was seeing all the communications work that mm-hmm. um, that that uh, that the director of UX was doing, uh, who's actually now the head of product. So actually, that seems to have worked out really nicely. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the way that the the effort and the depth to which they went to communicate the issues and possible solutions to their uh, 
to their executives in particular and to kind of get everyone on the same page about why we were doing this kind of big mm. uh, big change project and the incremental value being delivered. That changed my outlook from it being just a connected series of style guides to being really more of a philosophy of how a product group product engineering, design, QA, et cetera, work together, mm. um, supported by those tools. But it's it really is kind of more of a mindset. Interestingly, that's one of the few cases, the very few cases I've ever heard of the, a product team reporting to UX. For an organization oh, to wow. ship from a much more top-down culture to a UX team leading product, that's a, that's a hmm. massive shift in how an organization has kind of changed their philosophy over time. And I think it was McKinsey just did something that came out in the last mm. week about how design leadership is evolving, but yet companies are still struggling with it. Mm. And that, you know, design is getting its quote seat at the table, but mm. people are still struggling. You've risen through the ranks. So proud, by the way. So Thank you. <laughs> and um, how have have you changed how you approach things and how you approach transformation that's allowing you to be in these situations where design can have a greater impact? So how do you help make that happen? Sure. Um, so a big part of that is the language that I use and being, honestly, just taking a taking a page from, you know, my design thinking, human-centered design, that that is the kind of philosophy and mindset that I grew up with. But a page from that book is saying, take the language of the person you're trying to help um, and use that mm -hmm. to help them because that will help them help themselves. So a big part of how I communicate has been trying to eliminate, and I'm still working on it, it's not perfect, eliminate as much design jargon as I can from my language and try to see the problem from the from my targets or the person I'm trying to help from their point of view mm. and understand the language they use to describe their problem. Uh, mm. So the example I gave before about mobile posse where they saw their problem as, you know, opt-in in, in terms of opt-in rates and in terms of the what they call the I what we call the eye test, what well a lot of people call it, um, in front of potential big clients. Mm. So a lot of the things that I was proposing, I would retranslate it so that they would come back to those points even while I was expanding the possibilities of, hey, this thing that's going to help us be more scalable and it's going to help us deliver things faster and it's going to help reduce the, our, our small QA problems and focus on the bigger QA problems. That kind mm -hmm. of thing. Am I on track for that question? I don't know if I hit so, what you wanted me to hit. You're totally hitting in that already of two years ago would have had a whole different way of explaining that. <laughs> You're so wow. right. You're absolutely <laughs> <And> right. <laughs> the, the arty who's talking about, here's the business Mac direct, the business control, how I'm achieving that through design. Like, I don't think that arty... So I it just getting to watch this is so wonderful because it's this, this transformation. Like, I'm hmm. looking at a business leader who happens to be good at design. Thank you. That as opposed a to a design leader who sort of understands how the business works. <laughs> but, uh, so it's like, it's this transformation that's wonderful. It's just, if, if, I, if I may, of it was like, I, I, re, I still remember some of my first engagements here at Three Pillar and I just, I, I smile and chuckle at how dog, dogmatic I was um, around <laughs> like, design thinking is everything and we need everyone to think about design thinking and blah, blah. like that was, that was kind of my, like my coming in and having that energy. And nice. I mean, to a certain extent, it was, it was 
I mean, it, it helped me succeed in some cases, but it was definitely not complete. Yeah. Uh, it was not. It was not the full picture. Well, there's something really, really wonderful about that. Like being really good at your craft is a, is a prerequisite. It's an ingredient. To the but how we move into the spaces between our craft and the people who need to be served in order to build great products and businesses. That's where the magic is. That's where the that's where the opportunity is to Absolutely. to do something uh, truly, truly amazing. And then I'll go back to that part of your story where. You know, sales probably at Mobile Posse, this is just a guess, and, and you can comment on it, um, probably still doesn't understand design and will never understand the design design process the way that you do, but they see what they want in what you're trying to accomplish. Yep. And, and, and yep. in using their language, as, as you pointed out, is so potent because then they see the thing they desire in the thing that you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Um, if, if they are, if I am helping them, if I'm facilitating their success and vice versa, I don't need to know the intimate details of how a sale is made. I'm, I'm intellectually curious about it, but in mm. my day-to-day, that's not my that's not my role. But I know enough about it to help. And if they know enough about my stuff to be helped by it, then great. We mm. are working as a partnership. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That's really cool. Kind of so with that, as we as we talk about the theme of transformation, I'm curious, what are some of the common missteps that you see when folks you know, so a lot of our audience are, if they're listening to this, they're thinking about either a transformation they're in or a transformation that they feel like is coming or, or what have you. What are some things that are that are common uh, mistakes that people make as they start to enter that kind of phase? Sure. Um, it's so it's a broad question because it kind of addresses a lot of different transformations and the stuff. So I'll, I'll address kind of the, the mistakes that I have seen. Uh, one of one of the most prominent ones, I think, was also, again, working um, working with a client here at 3Pillar in the financial services space. Um, and I was on a project that involved creating a, basically altering a customer-facing, the, the frontline employee's workflow. And mm-hmm. that, uh, and kind of getting them to do things in new ways. The way that that was, the strategy that was that was employed was, hey, we're going to change this iPad app, and you're going to change this iPad app the way that we want, we management want you to, mm-hmm. so that our um, our frontline employees will, you know, start doing things differently, um, and and everyone will be happy. So one of that kind of represents one of the biggest mistakes, which was that they already thought that they had the answer, and they were not open to thinking about the solutions or partial solutions that their employees might have already as being a part of that process. So they were trying to transform the way that their employees work, but they didn't want to, they, they in a very limited way, I shouldn't say they didn't want to, but they wanted to consult their employees in a very limited way, mm-hmm. more, more from a Call it a usability perspective of like, all right, is this new thing that we're that we're making? Does it does do you understand to the it? left or right is cool. Um, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, Change a word. Yeah. So yeah. so what was fascinating is that it even got to the point, and this is actually coming right back to like my, the the dogmatic arty that used to be, um, <laughs> where I was I was doing my my absolute best to be as transparent as possible about all the user research that I was doing, all the conversations that I was having um, mm. with uh, with the with with the target users, uh, with those employees, and the more that, and I should have seen that, but I didn't. The more that I uh, that I did that, um, the more uncomfortable they grew, and the, mm. and to the point where at one uh, at one point they literally told me, "So we want you to stop talking to um, to the employees. Like we will gather feedback from them and give mm-hmm. it to you because we're really worried that you're a little off track here. We're worried that mm. the designs that you're going to output are going to reflect more what they want, and we train them anyway. So we're going to mm. tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so." So we'll filter that for you. And it was at that point where it was like, oh, you know, 
crud. Um, <laughs> that's not a great way of, of designing, but I got myself into this pickle because I was not emphasizing the right things to, mm. the, to, the, to the customer. Um, so that was, I guess that's one of the, the mistakes there was the idea that like, we already have the answer and our employees just need to do it versus, hey, we have an idea of what the problem is, but let's go find partners to help us solve this. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, it, and it, I think it's a, it's a common mistake for the, I mean, the, the system is set up to produce that situation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Management is and leadership is responsible for solving the issue. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, it, it makes sense with all that responsibility. They want to then take ownership of, of what is right answer. So it, it, takes, it takes real enlightened leadership to be able to say, I'm, I'm getting more and more articulate about the problem and I understand the limitations of my vision for how to solve it best. Um, and so how do I build a, a framework to, to close the gap? Um, that is, that, that I th- that's, a, that's a really insightful uh, uh, thing to point out. Absolutely. This, yeah. it, I think it really speaks to the top down. There's, there's, a, there's an instinct to go top down whenever there's mm-hmm. a change of this, like, yeah. I have a change, I have a vision, I'm going to set the course, and now everyone's going to come with me. There is a lot of vulnerability that is not usually encouraged in business culture mm-hmm. that is required to say, hey, I can I can give a general vision, but I need the help of the people around me and under me, especially mm-hmm. under me, because there's usually more people under you than next to you, mm-hmm. to help me figure out how to get to maybe if not exactly where I said we're going to go, mm-hmm. somewhere close by that's even better because we figured it out together. And yet we also have to point out that in a transformation, some part of your organization is going to resist that change. Absolutely. So you You'll have to. It's such an interesting mix of like onboarding the ones who are allies for getting to your destination, and also I think mitigating or or managing the 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 part of the organization that's going to resist that change, and you're going to have to help help them muscle through it. Very very tricky stuff. Yep, and that's that's another classic kind of mistake. There, I would say would uh, would be not showing incremental value, which mm. is actually something that I probably learned directly from Jess uh, back <laughs> in the day. Um, but the the idea that like you have this vision, you're excited about this transformation. And you want to sell the whole thing to everyone immediately yeah. um, versus Total what's buy the, in. <laughs> exactly what is the smallest piece of this that you can succeed in the smallest amount of time to convince the people that are most critical or at least most friendly already to you mm. start there gather allies grow and spiral mm. uh, from there and mm. so that that's that's another kind of trying to do it all at once that's, a, that's an excellent uh, you know tool tool to have in the box for sure yeah 100 percent directly from from Jess so credit where credit is due thank you. <laughs> It's like she wrote a book on this. <laughs> Almost like she wrote a book on this. That's right. That's awesome. I, I think it's been, you know, as I look back on a <clears throat> few year career <laughs> and in UX, I, I think there's this beautiful thing happening where like people are starting to realize this top down, bureaucratic, highly dictatorial thing is not quite generating the results and they're willing to try and people are pushing up and realizing if I want them to be more experimental, I have to get better explaining the value and delivering that incrementally. So I think there's this nice, over the arc of my career, people are coming, coming closer together and it becomes less about a fight over where we should, how we should, uh, if we should do it and and more about how do we do this? How we do it in a cost-effective way? How do we do it in a, in a closer time to market? As you think about if we broaden out beyond past clients or, or mobile posse, where do you think the industry is going? What are the big challenges that are on the horizon that people are going to have to deal with? If everyone says they're customer-obsessed, customer-centric, customer-focused, mm-hmm. it's an easy thing to say. But what that actually means and 
proving that you can walk the walk is saying, we don't have all the answers. Our customers are going to give us some of those answers and we're going to filter that through and figure out what Mm -hmm. kind of marries customer needs and perspective with the business needs and and feasibility and and all that. So one of the transformations that's happening in the wider business is there's a a lot of commoditization that's happening in various service sectors. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways of finding of finding points of differentiation is exactly that, to pay attention to what are the specific needs of your customers and what are ways that those needs are being underserved, beyond, especially beyond the obvious. So one of the examples that I that it, that is kind of the subject of the article is in the mm-hmm. telecom space, mm-hmm. where telecoms are very focused uh, right now on net ads. Net ads are everything, and net ads mm-hmm. are the number of customers Can that they're Can you explain adding. net ads? Sure. What does that mean? Um, so it's the number of customers that they are, number of subscribers that they are adding, the net number that they are adding. Right. Um, so, so net, net added overturn. Exactly. Yep. And they're very focused on that because that's where that's where they get mm-hmm. their their revenue from, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that nowadays the there's not a lot that differentiates. I mean, the thing that truly differentiates service is do I get bars where I am, right? Mm-hmm. Like and we we've all experienced that. There's commercials that focus on that, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that's kind of one. One one piece of the puzzle, mm. but if that is your entire brand experience from a customer's perspective, if your entire brand experience is do I get bars or not, mm-hmm. once more and more of um, of uh, of these of, of carriers are covering more and more areas. The differentiation is not there anymore. It's right. just mm-hmm. kind of the like, tricking. okay, does my exactly yeah. does my phone work or not? And then the only other touch points you have with that brand are something's wrong with my phone bill, and customer service is giving me a hard time, or I'm having trouble getting through, or I don't know how to get through, or the interface isn't telling me how to fix this, etc. So there's a lot mm. of negative touch points that customers have associated with those brands, mm. and yet net ads is so important. Of like, how well how are you going to get? people to mm-hmm. think about switching over beyond just I moved and this is now the carrier that that is most uh, most useful from a, from a mm-hmm. bar's perspective in this new city. But if you want to actually get net ads in the same city without people having moved, you have to give them a reason to, mm-hmm. and you have to differentiate your brand and things that you do. And to do that, you have to figure out how does my, how does, how do the services that I provide or that I could provide fit into the customer's life in such a mm-hmm. way that it's adding value to them, to their mm-hmm. lives. Um, so that's, to come back to your question, <laughs> figuring that out, how to, mm-hmm. how to take customer feedback, how to be more human-centered, yeah. um, is a really big part of how to differentiate mm-hmm. one's, oneself or a company in a commoditizing industry, which a lot yep. of service industries are in right now. Yeah, yeah, across the hall, literally across the hall, is a group that's working on that in the auto insurance there you go. space. So it's like how to, in, which also... It's share of wallet, like how do in because they're you know they're all they're competing for their version of net ads. So how do we create something that's mm. very different that would en- encourage people to change? So I think it's a great business focused, design inspired way for yeah. you to get about it. So Artie, we have standard questions for every guest. Sure, sure. So what's the thing you always look for on a team that tells you if it's an if it's healthy or in trouble? So 
If I see resistance from leadership in terms of wanting to either hide or reduce the importance or ignore inconvenient feedback from employees or from customers mm-hmm. or from, from folks that they're supposed to be paying attention to, then that's that to me is a ticking time bomb. That's sort of like, we have this vision and we are, uh, this is perhaps somewhat informed from my own history, but we're very inflexible about yeah. um, about this vision and and we're just kind of driving towards it and we're trying to not not let anything interfere with that in the mm-hmm. interest of getting there as quickly as possible and efficiently as possible. But we miss the signs that tell us that we're actually, we should be turning and pivoting and navigating yeah. in a different way. So that's, I don't know if that's too generic of an answer. Yeah. No, that, I think it's a no, that's really it. good it's answer. It speaks to like the research on psychological safety that Google and, and others have done. Project Aristotle from Google, yes, yeah. Really yeah, honed that, in on, on psychological safety as a, as a key prerequisite or ingredient to high performance in teams. And then if you think about a highly competitive, always changing world, not being able to be open to that is definitely would be the kiss of death. Absolutely. Vulnerability being, so speaking of kind of psychological safety, that goes hand in hand with vulnerability. And that's something that is very difficult to achieve. It's not something that's held up as a value. Like being vulnerable is something usually that you hear more in therapy than you hear in business circles, Mm -hmm. but it's something that's absolutely critical because you have to know how to, how to not look like you have all the answers and still lead and be a service oriented leader. I think that's, that's, that is really well put. And it's, it's probably the advice lately that I've been dispensing most to um, CPOs or CTOs at, at, at companies that are clients of ours, um, most frequently at this point, is to is to help them think about the product process, building products, serving clients as a journey. It's a journey of discovery, constant discovery. And if you start to think about it that way, it's it's always trying to get that piece of insight that's going to allow you to unlock a, a problem that your clients want to pay you to solve. Um, mm-hmm. And that takes rich interaction. It takes discovery. Um, it doesn't take having a, a really well-defined product and then executing as well as, as well as possible on it, which is the typical approach. I build a business plan. I already have my features. I know how much it's going to cost to build. I know what the I've modeled how how many users are going to buy it. Right, like that's business likes to invest in things that are much clearer. This is the investment in. This is the, going to be the result. Even when that clarity comes, maybe from theater. Um, more so than mm-hmm. than actual assuredness. Ex- a lot of exactly. a lot of valuation situations happening now that are showing the corrections of of folks that had that. What is it? I guess metrics theater, but then it didn't hold up to shareholders' expectations. Right, yeah. so. right. Aspiration and reality. These are funny things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No. So that's that's uh, that's interesting. The other question we like to ask is, what piece of technology, analog software or hardware, can you not live without and you are not allowed to say your phone? Because that's cheating. <laughs> I, uh, no, yeah, that's fine. I, I, it would be a boring answer anyway. So, um, I want to give uh, I want to give an annoyingly unorthodox answer, which will be that that'll probably be, you know, heating and water. Um, okay. Because indoor plumbing. Uh, indoor, <laughs> indoor plumbing and electricity. Yeah. Like, frankly, um, mm. mostly because what's interesting to me about that is like, well, mm-hmm. obviously, duh, but but the interesting part is that that's those are pieces of technology that we're not even thinking of as technology anymore. Mm-hmm. They're so in the background. They've been so absorbed. They're so domestic. There was actually, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day. I think it's called Our Opinions Are Correct, which is hilarious, but it's a, it's a, science, it's a science writer and, uh, or a science journalist and a science fiction author who kind of mm. get together and talk about technology. It's fantastic. Highly recommend. And uh, they were talking about the technologies that we get so much 
we get so many details about speculative technologies. So, for example, the warp drive on Star Trek. We know a lot about um, about how Star Trek sees the way that we're going to go faster than light. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of meta details and detail theater around this very sexy concept of a faster than light drive. But how do they clean their clothes? You know, do they recycle them in the replicators or do mm-hmm. they, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how do they go to the bathroom? We've never seen anyone go to the bathroom. Is, is the bathroom <laughs> technology different? We have, we have an idea that um, <laughs> there's this thing called the sonic shower. I'm a big Trekkie, which is why this was important to me. Yeah. So there's this thing called the sonic shower, for example, they always refer to it, which is like a, perhaps something that shakes dirt off of your body or something like that. But we, we, I think we see it once and not really in a lot of detail. It's just kind of there's a noise that happens. Um, <laughs> And so there's a lot of these technologies that are unexamined because they're they're considered to be domestic or they're considered to be kind of eh, not as sexy beneath examination. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, I'm also a Star Wars fan. And one of the things that's funny is that I collect these um, Starship cutout books, these like giant books that have these beautiful illustrations of mm-hmm. these uh, of these starships. And what's interesting is that they never have a bathroom in them. They're, they're, <laughs> you never see the space toilet. Um, and uh, and 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 you think Somebody about it. Humans like, are built differently. Than, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. It's they like have they, that they, at the National Air and Space. They show you the toilet. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Absolutely. Um, and because yeah, they are, had, they had to reinvent the toilet. They had to have one. Yeah, absolutely. no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they they reinvented the way that that works and everything. <laughs> but you know, that doesn't get. It's not as sexy of a technology. So there's a lot of technologies that that we cannot live without that we do not even think of as yeah. technologies that are worthy of examination or that are that are worthy yeah. of, of interest. And hmm. people so. in some parts of the United States are not getting clean water. Clean, Correct. Yeah. Hmm. Correct. Well, I, I think I think your answer to that question uh, says a lot about you and the, and how you look mm-hmm. at things and how um, it's easy to overlook those kinds of details. Um, and it takes someone who doesn't overlook those kinds of details and their importance to the human uh, comfort and living to gather those insights about building products. So that's that's fantastic. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com or visit us at threepillarglobal.com. Three